Welcome to the Regional Roundup, a production of the Rocky Mountain Community Radio Coalition, a network of public and community radio stations in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah and New Mexico, including this one. I'm Maeve Conran, the Coalition's Managing Editor, and today we'll hear how one library is the community's living room. Library is the place where you don't have to ever believe something or buy something to come in here and stay and enjoy the space. Then we'll hear how another library offers much more than books. They were empowering me to like open up and take off the screws and stuff, so I appreciate that because I would like to, you know, I've never seen the inside of a little motor like that before. After that, the downside of living in beautiful places when everyone else wants to live there too. It's the paradox of a place with natural attractions that make it a great place to live, but also threaten it with being loved to death. And we'll hear what it's like to be lost and missing in Zion National Park for five days. I couldn't go up, I couldn't go down. This was going to be my place until I got rescued. From the Rocky Mountain Community Radio Coalition, it's the Regional Roundup. When you think of your local library, What do you think of? Books? Internet access? A convenient place to hang out? Well, the public library in Moab is all that and more. Let's pay a visit now with this story from Great Tape, an audio magazine from KZMU. Here's Molly Marcello. You know, if you want to read a book, you can just grab it and put it back back when you're done. Or like if you want to take it home, you can borrow it for free. And, like, it's just a place to, like, calm down, be quiet, relax. That's Jonathan. I'm speaking to him in what's affectionately known as Moab's Living Room, the Grand County Public Library. The afternoon light is sending huge streaks of dappled sunshine over us as we speak. Jonathan says he's here, like, every other Friday. And when he walks in, it's undeniable. There's a pervasive sense of calm, like how some people feel kicking back at home. Like, just whenever I get the opportunity to, it's just a calm, relaxing feeling that you need every once in a while. Like, you can literally, like, I literally feel the calm. All because there's so much green in this room. Jonathan's right. There is a lot of green in this room. Look around, and plants are everywhere, helping with that calming effect. Actually, the more you spend time in the Moab Library, the more you notice. There's just so much to take in, so much information to explore. I guarantee no two people are doing exactly the same thing at the same time. I know because I've asked them. It's got a fantastic collection of DVDs and I'm big on old whodunits, black and whites from the 50s and early 60s. Um, Did you know the library has a collection of detective DVDs? Did you know that people were still checking out DVDs? And then there's people who come for the community puzzle. It's a big one, always out on the table near the front desk. People pass by, sit down with it, chip away at it. Uh, When I was down and out, they had puzzles. I put thousand-piece puzzles together, so it was a godsend for me. When I didn't have any money, (laughs) I thought, well, visit to the library. Uh, Many times it has saved my life, actually when I went through divorce. And so 
It's been my friend. This friend can help you find books, too. Maybe you introduce yourself with your earth name, Joshua, but suddenly in the philosophy section, it dissolves and you become one with the universe. Uh, When a book is needed, it will find you. I found a book here that's kind of eluded me for about six months. They had a book that I haven't been able to read. It's been really kind of like an oasis, but real. You know, it's a desert, but this is, it's tangible. It's, I'm not hallucinating. This is, there are books here and it's great. It's not a hallucination. People do so much at the library. Staff say they have about 500 people on average walking in and out of these doors every day. And each one of them needs a slightly different thing. Assistant Director Meg Flynn likens the library to the room of requirement. It's from a popular young adult novel, a room that changes to suit whatever particular need you might have at the moment. Like you go in there and whatever it is that you're looking for, like, do you need internet access? Do you need a recipe because you have like way too much broccoli at your house? Like, do you need to know what the phone number to the, I don't know, hospital is? Like, it just doesn't matter. Like, when you come into this space, you have a question or a need and the library will become the solution to what you're looking for. That's pretty much right there in the mission of the Grand County Public Library, a free, accessible resource that connects people, information, and ideas. Library is the place where you don't have to ever believe something or buy something to come in here and stay and enjoy the space. Everyone is welcome. It is a third space. It is the place that people go that's not home, that's not work, that is an Uh, you know, a very important part of their community. Carrie Valdez, director of the Grand County Public Library. She's worked here for at least 22 years. I know, she can't believe it either. I don't feel that old, but I must be. (laughs) Yeah, over 22 years. And while rounding the corner to her second decade at the library, Valdez said she had a life-changing experience. One that made her start questioning big things, like is the Moab Library as free and accessible as it claims to be? In classic, someone should write a book about this tone, Valdez says the being who ushered in these questions was an orphan dressed in a black and white tuxedo, a cat who showed up at the library and refused to leave. When he first started coming in, I was told, hey, there's a cat in the library. And I'm like, get the cat out. You can't have a cat, you know. And I told staff, don't feed him and don't name him. We don't need a cat. We can't have a cat. We're a public building. I don't know who to talk to. I don't know how you get permission to have a cat. I can't use public monies to buy cat food. Like, we, you, <laughs> you can't have a cat. You can't have a library cat. Okay, there was a lot of stress about this cat. Library staff found out that its family did indeed move away. So the cat really didn't have anywhere else to go. Heartstrings unmoved. Director Valdez doubled down and tried to level with it. The cat and I engaged in a battle of wills that took about two months, and I lost. And I explained all the reasons we couldn't have a cat, and he looked at me and he said, those are you problems, you have a cat. The whole debacle with the cat, whose name is Cosmo, by the way, and is doing just fine. He now has a featured column in the Moab Sun News. He has t-shirts and stickers with his face on them. Anyway, the whole debacle over Cosmo the cat was a big moment for her. It was one of the things that started this idea of, wait, why are we doing this? You know, why, why are we doing what we're doing? Valdez went back to the mission of the library to be a free and accessible resource. She started examining that. 
there's this thing in, in libraries called vocational awe, and it's this idea that libraries are inherently good, and so you can't question any of what they do, right? And, and Cosmo is, is the thing that taught me that you have to question what you do. You, you have to recognize that as good as public libraries are, there's systemic racism built into public libraries. And so we have to look at what we're doing and why we're doing it, and just because we've always done it that way is a really bad reason to keep doing it. Um, and, and honestly, I, the cat is the reason <laughs> that we looked at all this, because I, he said, yeah, you now have a library cat, and now go forward and be a different library, and so we're trying. So for the past five years, the Moab Library has been embracing its Cosmo era. They started with late fees, got rid of them. They figured the folks who can least afford the fees are the ones most affected by them. And staff didn't want people staying away from the library forever because of a lost or a late book. Late fees had to go. Next, they moved on to library cards, made it easier to get one. In the past, you might have needed a mortgage statement or some tax information, not anymore. They made sure all residents, not just local homeowners, could easily get a library card. And they created a handy student card with the school district for local kids. Speaking of local kids, the library created the Kids Cafe. Before the Cosmo era, students would pour in after school telling staff, I'm hungry. The policy used to be, sorry kid, you're out of luck. Now, in the Cosmo era, they coordinated with the Utah Food Bank and local churches to provide snacks. They realized kids were coming to a safe space to do their homework or meet their friends while the adults in their lives were working. The library's motto around kids and snacks became, sure, let's see what we can do. Next, they turned to mobile technology. Staff wanted to make sure community members had equitable access to the internet. A few grants helped the library offer mobile hotspots and Chromebooks for checkout. Oh, I do have a story here, so I'll lower the music. Here's Valdez. We had a patron that was attending Arches Adult Education, was about ready to give up. He was trying to get his GED, was about ready to give up because he did not have internet at his house. He did not have a computer. He worked at least two, maybe even three kitchen type jobs, dishwasher, back of the, back of the house type jobs at different restaurants. And he would come to the library at one in the morning because this is where the Wi-Fi was to try to submit assignments, to take tests, to do what he needed to do to get his GED. And through a partnership with Arches Adult Education, we received a small collection of hotspots and Chromebooks. And we were able to check out to him a hotspot and a Chromebook where he could keep it with him at all times. And so in between jobs, if he was on a break, he could use the hotspot, use the Chromebook, and do his work. He brought those in at the end of the time in schooling where he had received his GED, and he was in tears. He said, thank you, I would have never gotten this GED if I had not have had this hotspot and this laptop. Um, and then later found out that he had gotten a full-time benefited job because he now had a high school equivalency that he could put on his applications. And that is a story that from that second, we will never not circulate hotspots because it had, I mean, this is a real life impact on somebody. Hear more about the Moab Public Library by listening to the full episode of Great Tape, an audio magazine at kzmu.org. Meanwhile, at the main public library branch in downtown Boulder, Colorado, people are gathering for a very different kind of experience. Here's KGNU's Sam Fuqua. 
On a recent Sunday afternoon at the Boulder Main Library, about a dozen people huddled around work tables in Building 61, the library's makerspace. It's the Boulder You Fix It clinic, where volunteer coaches help people learn how to repair a wide range of electronics and household items. Sylvain Heyoun is helping fix a noisy fan. We try different things. We start with oil first, putting some oil on the axe here in the middle. And that did work a little bit better, I think, right? Mm -hmm. And then we took everything apart, in fact. And we cleaned up inside the bearing, which was a little bit dusty And when we cleaned up. And it seems to be better. The retired engineer says he enjoys volunteering at the clinics and helping people be more confident about trying their own repairs. It's fun and uh, that empower the people who are not, doesn't have much knowledge to open and to figure out and don't trash that. It's easy to open, it's easy to repair most of the time. The fan belongs to Erin Brennan. She says she did learn some things. They were empowering me to like open up, take off screws and stuff, so I appreciate that because I would like to, you know, I've never seen the inside of a little motor like that before. At another table was a guy with a turntable and stereo speakers. There was also a cell phone, an electric lawnmower, and a coffee maker. Clinic volunteers say they see all kinds of kitchen appliances, inkjet printers, and a lot of lamps. We always ask our, our participants three questions. What was this thing like when it was working? What happened when it broke? And what have you done since then? Wayne Seltzer founded the Boulder You Fix It Clinic about 10 years ago in partnership with local nonprofit EcoCycle. There are now about 1,000 people on his You Fix It mailing list. He's also an engineer and says he grew up in a family of frugal immigrants, learning how to fix stuff from his dad. Seltzer loves passing on that knowledge. What I'm most proud of is when people who come here claiming to not know how to use a screwdriver eventually learn enough skills they want to volunteer as a coach. So that is awesome. So whether you want to save money, reduce waste, or just learn more about how devices work, the Boulder You Fix It Clinic is there to help you exercise your right to repair. For KGNU, I'm Sam Fuqua. Find out more about Boulder's makerspace at news.kgnu.org. You're listening to the Regional Roundup from the Rocky Mountain Community Radio Coalition. I'm Maeve Conran. Many towns throughout the Rocky Mountain West are grappling with similar issues. They have stunning natural beauty, which attracts tourists and new residents, driving up the cost of housing and putting pressure on local infrastructure. Essentially, they're being loved to death. That's the subject of a new report by the Montana-based group Headwaters Economics. Reporter Nick Bolan writes about it in High Country News. There's a term in there that I really want to dig into that really gets to the heart of what the issue is, and it's called the amenity trap. Tell us what that means and how that is playing out in some of these Western communities. Sure. The amenity trap, as Headwaters defines it, is... They kind of led it with a great quote. So this is their language. It's the paradox of a place with natural attractions that make it a great place to live, but also threaten it with being loved to death. So they're basic, this report is focusing on tourism-dependent communities 
listeners probably be familiar with one, but, you know, Bozeman, Montana, Moab, uh, a lot of the ski towns in Colorado. And basically the report lays out that this is a recognizable pattern across tourism de dependent communities in the West. And the pattern is basically increased visitation leads to budget challenges for the local government because of infrastructure shortages or roads start crumbling because of, of so many cars coming in. Um, it leads to acute housing shortages when kind of exacerbated by the pandemic, well-to-do people, remote workers pour into an area, drive up housing prices and reduce housing stock. Anyone who doesn't have a certain amount of money finds it difficult to live there. I mean, it also kind of refers to dependence on one sort of economic activity, which is basically providing amenities for visitors, for second homeowners, for people visiting the area for its natural beauty. And it traps you into this economy where the only sorts of jobs available to locals are bartending, ski lifts, you know, kind of seasonal work that is providing an amenity. And this creates income inequality. It creates the budget shortfalls we talked about. It makes them kind of singularly dependent on this one sort of thing. And so one of the examples they brought up is the flooding outside of Yellowstone National Park last year. Gardner, Montana saw a 92% reduction in lodging revenue from a, from a local lodging tax. Uh, this is something the report discussed. So, you know, something happens from a natural disaster and these local communities find themselves with no cash on hand. In terms of natural disasters, of course, we're living through the impacts of the climate crisis, not just with flooding, but of course, wildfires as well, which has a huge impact on that. And I'd like to dig into some of the climate and environmental impact of this and some of the nuance, because what you have then, you have these towns where people who are working in the amenity economy or the service industry are having to commute from really far away. And you talk about that in your article where folks are commuting into ski towns like Breckenridge from Leadville. That has a huge carbon impact having that level of commute. Then, of course, you have the building of these massive houses, which has another environmental impact as well. Well, what is the, the climate or the environmental connection to all of this? I mean, the commuting thing is big, um, you know, not not just the amount of people driving in who are, you know, often in individual cars. That's probably the main source of emissions. Prices spike, but they also become kind of the economic engine of a local area. So, you know, wages are higher there. So people are incentivized to go for, for understandable reasons. So you end up with situations like in the article, uh, Telluride, Colorado, huge demand for construction workers. But if you're a construction worker, you have to live an hour and a half away in Montrose. That's, you know, an, an enormous burden on, on the workers on their, the amount of money they're spending on fuel, um, on the roads going in and out of Telluride. Um, and then, you know, specifically on that natural disaster angle, as you say, flooding wildfires are becoming increasingly prevalent in in this region. And, you know, this overlies with this because, you know, in an area, you know, where a lot of new housing has been built recently to handle the demand to, to live in a beautiful place, you know, a lot of times the places where new housing can be built you know, might be in a floodplain or in an area that's particularly prone to wildfires in the outskirts of a town where, you know, there might be some open land, but that might also be the place where it might be the, the highest fire danger. The report gets into ways to invest in infrastructure to minimize the risk. 
more controlled zoning when it comes to the wildfire risk and, and housing where that overlaps. And then, you know, they also talk about kind of investing in a in an emergency management plan with with FEMA risk analysis and kind of developing policies all around wildfire to get people out of areas of higher risk if there is a disaster. Is there anything that you think people need to take away from this about how these dynamics are really impacting not just these individual communities, but really regionally, this is a huge issue. Yeah, it it is. And I mean, I think one of the things that makes this so interesting is that, you know, these, these places, they are rural areas, but, you know, when they become such a destination for real estate investment and tourism, what, what the report actually said is that a lot of the, the housing stuff that they describe here are like have a lot of overlap with like city housing problems. They call them urban housing problems. Like a really poor area in the Mountain West doesn't have a lot in common with the problems that Crested Butte's facing. I'm putting words in the report's mouth, you know, and this is kind of well-documented and they, you know, they describe it as an urban housing problem. Like Crested Butte's housing problem might have more in common with like Austin, Texas <laughs> or like the Bay Area or something like that, just because of the sort of people with the amount of money that they have that are coming in here. It kind of creates these interesting little areas, whether it's Crested Butte or Moab or Taos or Bozeman or Vail, that these problems are like very unique to these resource dependent areas. And as the report says, they kind of require a unique set of solutions. Nick Boland's article, Western Resort Towns Risk Being Loved to Death, is in High Country News. People can read it at hcn.org. Nick, thanks very much for taking time to talk to us. Thanks for having me on. You're listening to the Regional Roundup from the Rocky Mountain Community Radio Coalition. John Berg is a 79-year-old retired city planner. He and his wife live in Glenwood Springs. John grew up hiking and skiing in Colorado. In September 2021, he went hiking in Zion National Park and he got lost. And I look around and there's a huge, huge precipice and maybe, I don't know, 100 feet or more down. Hmm. And at this point, no way I can go back up. I look around and I see a red strap and a carabiner attached to it. Mm. At that point, I knew what had happened. I was sunk. Mm. This was a place for people to rappel down this canyon. Mm. And I certainly didn't have the equipment nor the knowledge of what to do. I couldn't go up. I couldn't go down. This was going to be my place until I got rescued. John was rescued five days later. He writes about the experience in an essay called Lost, Trapped and Rescued. He spoke with KVNF's Ashley Crest on the show The Pen and the Sword. And you experienced a lot of hallucinations um, while lost in the desert. The way you were able to recall them in such detail in this essay is very intriguing. And and one of the parts of the stories I was most drawn to, I guess. Um, Can you read about some of those accounts from the essay for our listeners? I'll be happy to. Yeah. And it it is interesting what the mind does uh, when you are in trouble. And I I may or may or not have had a a concussion. I don't know. Hmm. But... Hmm. My body Certainly went, dehydrated. Bit, dehydrated. Right? My body was in trouble. My, my mind was doing some strange things. I'll start with one. This was the, the first night. 
A surreal night. I was first dazzled by the clarity of the stars. Clouds rolled in. There were reflections of a canyon wall from distant lighting. Light, darkness, and shadows all became abstract, making it impossible to discern reality. Lighting overhead was followed by a light rain. I saw folk carrying bobbling lanterns coming to rescue me and glowering animals' eyes making their way down canyon walls. Very real, though in time I realized they were stars. Further on, this, this, actually this, these next couple are from the time that I was down in the canyon stuck. Mm-hmm. So this is day two and three, probably. Yeah, right? actually this one I think is day three. Day three. Day three. The rock face in front of me contained a complex bas-relief created by a young family, an old train, a mountain lion, an old pickup truck, corrals filled with bulls and other animals, a small group of sheep, a huge white cat with black eyes on a sofa, alongside a woman in a lounger, a Mexican adobe home, a mining operation, a portrait of the couple's daughter, other easy chairs, a title for it all, which morphed into a series of animals. This was all very real. I didn't realize until two days later that they were merely abstract patterns in the stone. At the beginning of your essay, Lost, Trapped, and Rescued, you write, My intent here is primarily therapeutic, an attempt to deal with my trauma of being lost in Zion's wilderness for five days and four nights also in sharing this experience to possibly provide insight for others. Given the deterioration of my body and mind during this trauma, my memories are no doubt faulty, at times even hallucinations, as you just discussed. Can you say more about why you decided to write about this story of getting lost in the wilderness? It was a a compelling thing to do. I mean, I uh, realized after I got out of the hospital I'd spent about three days down in the hospital in St. George after the rescue, that I had severe, severe PTSD. I mean, the modern world was very, very strange. Hmm. Uh, Even small signs in the small town of St. George just seemed, were glaring in my face. I couldn't almost stand being in civilization. And And I just had this compelling need to, um, I think it was a very therapeutic, and it was therapeutic, but a need to write it down, to kind of get it out, to kind of expunge this this tale and these searing uh, emotions in my brain and get it down on paper. Wow. Wow. Well, I, I was curious about the process of writing it. Did you, well, first of all, it was amazing to me that you remembered so much with such detail. And um, I was curious, did you write it in parts and pieces or all at once? How was the process It was for you? pretty much all at once. Uh, you know, I hadn't, I was back in Tucson only for, I can't remember, a few days at most. And I think I got up and like in the middle of the night, one night, went into the computer and maybe wrote from two in the morning till several hours later. I don't know how long, pretty much wrote it all at once. And the reason I remember the detail is there wasn't much else going on out there, and it was really seared into my brain. John Berg speaking about his experience of being lost, trapped and rescued from Zion National Park with Ashley Crest on KVNF's 
pen and the sword. You can find the full interview at kvnf.org. You've been listening to The Regional Roundup, a production of Rocky Mountain Community Radio, a coalition of public and community radio stations in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah and New Mexico, including this one. Thanks to Molly Marcello of KZMU in Moab, Sam Fuqua of KGNU in Boulder in Denver, Nick Bolan of High Country News and Ashley Crest of KVNF in Paonia. Our theme music is Take Me Somewhere by Joel Adam Russell. I'm Maeve Conran. Thanks for listening.